Please take your Bibles out and turn with me to 2 Chronicles this morning, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to uh, take time together to look at verses 1 through 12 of 2 Chronicles and chapter 20 as we uh, look to uh, this prayer, this marvelous, God-exalting, uh, gospel-advancing uh, prayer that we find here by the King. So 2 Chronicles chapter 12 reading the first 12, uh, excuse me, chapter 20, the first 12 verses we'll read. Hear now God's uh, Word. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt... And whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not so the word. It will abide forever. Let's ask God's blessing. Father, we are powerless. So often we do not know what to do. And so would you, through this message, more deeply turn our eyes upon you, upon your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I know of very few things in the Christian life which are more difficult and demanding and at times discouraging that require more discipline than that of prayer. Prayer is hard work. One English Puritan said this, 
There are times in my life when I would rather die than pray. You relate to that to some degree? Sometimes prayer is so difficult. Prayer is warfare. Another author said, prayer is not preparation for the battle. Prayer is the battle. And Satan hates prayer. Satan does not fear prayerless Christians. Satan does not fear prayerless churches. He doesn't fear prayerless worship services. He doesn't fear prayerless fathers and mothers. But when we pray, he trembles. Why? Why does Satan hate prayer? Because prayer is the acknowledgement of our weakness. And in the acknowledgement of our weakness, prayer sets in motion, prayer unleashes the blessings of God, the power of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God. When we pray in weakness, God is delighted to make Himself known to us and to bless us. Of the many prayers that we find in the Bible, few are more memorable and instructional than the one we find here in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 from the lips of Jehoshaphat. These words were written to an audience of former exiled Jewish people who had returned to the promised land but in a shell of their former glory. The temple had been destroyed. They had been minimized in terms of number. They were surrounded by powerful nations and wondering about their identity moving forward. What an encouragement this prayer of King Jehoshaphat that had occurred earlier in their history must have been for these these believers, these Jewish people. And I believe God intends this morning for that same encouragement for you and for me. There are two things that I want to show you from this text about prayer. First, I want you to see how absolutely committed God is in bringing you and me to a position where we recognize that our only option is to pray. That's the first thing I want to show you from the text, that God is absolutely committed in bringing you and me to a position where our only place to turn is to God in prayer on our knees, God's commitment to us. And then secondly, I want you to see how absolutely confident you and I can be in the God to whom we pray. As we see the confidence of Jehoshaphat, as he clings to the character of God and the, and the past provisions of God and the faithfulness of God, those two things. God's commitment to us in bringing us to a position to see our need, and then our confidence that we can have as we look to Him in prayer. So first of all, consider with me His commitment to us. Our our, our passage begins in verse 1 with this phrase, after this. After this. Uh, It refers, of course, to the immediate context, the last few chapters. Jehoshaphat was the king of... uh, 
of Judah to the south. There were two kingdoms now in Israel, one to the north, one to the south. And boys and girls, overall, uh, he was a good king, a godly king, a righteous king. Back in chapter 17, verse 3, we're told, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. Because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David, he did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, and walked in his commandments, and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord, and furthermore, he took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. Verse 10 of chapter 17 adds, And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. So he had set his heart upon the Lord, and the Lord had blessed him. Chapter 18, we're told that he made a foolish alliance with Ahab to the north, which brought about all sorts of negative consequences. Chapter 19, we read of Jehoshaphat that he recognizes his sin turns from it, and ends up bringing about great reformation within the land. Verse 3 tells us that he goes out and and seeks the Lord once again. Verse 4, and he went out among the people and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And so, chapter 19 ends on a high note. Jehoshaphat, this godly king, recognizes his heir in chapter 18. He then, as a good shepherd, goes after the sheep, and he is used by the Lord to turn their hearts back to God. In other words, it was a great spiritual uh, victory and success. And then we're introduced in chapter 20 to the reality of an attack. And I think there's something for us to learn here. Oftentimes in the Christian life, is it not the case that we are most vulnerable to attack immediately upon the heels of success, of obedience, of spiritual victory. I know that has been the case in my own life often. If the Lord gives grace to withstand the wiles of the devil and to fend off the attacks of the evil one, What happens so often is that we put our guard down. We think of ourselves as self-dependent, and that is when we are most vulnerable. The Apostle Peter, when Jesus predicted his denial, he he said, no, I'm not going to do that. Even if all the disciples turn their back on you, I'll never do that. I will die for you. And just verses later, we find him denying Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Paul says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he falls. That was the situation, that was the context. Into chapter 20, after these things, an attack came. The attack came by three nations, surrounding nations, who uh, had allied together to try to uh, bring down Jehoshaphat and Judah. It was a great multitude. We're told in verse 2 that they were already in Engedi. This was only 25 miles uh, to the southeast away, so they were coming quickly, and as a result, the king was afraid. And who wouldn't be with a vast army coming upon you, and you were in charge of your nation, and you didn't have the resources, you didn't have the, 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 the 
the military to defend yourself. But I want you to notice with me what the king didn't do. The king didn't call his allies on the phone and, and, and get them to help. He didn't call forth uh, more ammunition from his military. We're told that he set his face to seek the Lord. In fact, we're told that three times in verses 3 and 4. To repeat the superlative, he set his face to seek the Lord. The entire nation, all of Judah, sought the Lord in his sanctuary together. So instead of turning to his own resources, the king turned to the living God to seek his face, his blessing. And why did he do that? Well, verse 12 tells us. Verse 12 tells us, for we are powerless and we do not know what to do. We are powerless and we do not know what to do. The Lord brought the king to a place of complete desperation. The enemy was so overwhelming. He and his people were so overmatched that their only option remaining was to seek the Lord. But friends, that's precisely where God wants you and me this morning. In His infinite wisdom and almighty mercy, God will bring an army of soldiers to bring us to our knees if that's what it takes. to strip away at our self-reliance, to begin shipping away at our pride. He will do what He deems best to get you and I to a position of weakness. Think again of the original audience who were listening to these words. Exile had stripped them from their previous glory. The glory years were gone. The question now for that generation was, would they seek the Lord or would they continue looking to their own resources? Would they look to the allies around them? Would they look within? Would they look ultimately to their past traditions or would they turn and seek the Lord? You see, when trials and difficulties come, why isn't it my first instinct to pray? When trials and temptations come, why isn't it that I would first and foremost get low and pray to God because of my pride, because of my self-sufficiency, because of because I think I can handle it myself. I think I have the resources, I have the smarts, I have the intellect. Just like the disciples thought in Gethsemane even when Jesus said, stay awake and alert and pray that you might not fall into temptation. But they didn't pray. They were strong. And yet when Jesus came back from his own prayer, he finds them sleeping. Our prayerlessness is an evidence of a proud, arrogant 
heart. It is our own declaration of independence. Prayerlessness is our way of saying, I can do all things through me and my own strength. I don't need God's help. I don't need God's grace today. Well, perhaps you're thinking, well, if an army came against you, certainly you would pray. You'd feel desperate. We see this, don't we? Even unbelievers, when it's serious enough, will we'll do things like this, right? They'll, they'll call upon God. I think this is one of Satan's greatest warfare strategies, convincing you and me that we are usually safe, that there's no urgency, there's no warfare going on. But the truth of the matter is we are constantly under attack against our threefold enemies, the devil, the world, and the flesh. Every single day we wake up in a war. Every single day the reality of the situation is that we are under the assault of the enemy and we are in and of ourselves absolutely powerless. We cannot do it in our strength. We must learn to pray like our lives depended upon it. God in His grace will even send trials and difficulties to bring us to a place of complete dependency. To bring us to a place where we say with the king, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Paul's thorn in the flesh we heard about last Sunday evening. It was given to him to keep him from being what? Conceited. So that he could learn the incredible, amazing truth that God's power is made known where? In our weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Just recently heard the story um, of a friend who, when he was young, was involved in a terrible accident as a two-year-old, was struck by an oncoming vehicle as a, as a pedestrian running around and uh, was immediately uh, taken to the, to the hospital where he spent uh, many, many weeks and months in a coma and in recovery. The Lord preserved him. Um, but the, the parents of this now adults were describing that experience. And uh, the, the mom said, as a parent, you want to do everything. You want to fix things. If you don't know how to do it yourself, you'll find somebody that does. But at that moment, we recognize that his safety and his future was entirely outside of our control. And so they were brought to this 
dark but sweet place of weakness where they could only pray. Groan. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're at the end of your rope as a parent or your marriage seems hopeless or you keep giving in to the same sin over and over again or you have a huge decision to make and you don't know what to do. God is in the business of bringing us to a point where we pray, I'm powerless and I don't have any other options. My eyes are on you. I I don't know what you're doing. I don't know the answer to the riddle. I, I can't make sense of what I'm called to do right now in this situation. I'm powerless but my eyes are on you. My eyes are on you, and he's committed. He's committed to getting us to a point where we, where we see our absolute weakness, our inability. That's his commitment to us. We also see, secondly and lastly, the confidence that we can have in him. Jehoshaphat was brought to this point of desperation and dependency where his prayer um, showed that he was out of resources himself and so he cast himself upon the Lord. And I want you to notice the confidence that the king has in the person of God and in his works. So Jehoshaphat stands up in the middle of the assembly in God's house and and what does he do? He, He prays. And I think one of the greatest tragedies of the American modern church is the absence of prayer in our corporate worship services. Imagine what might happen if the American church ignored all of its resources and stormed the gates of heaven. May that be true of Harvest Church. May that be true of Grace Fellowship Church. That we would together often and regularly and, and, and urgently ask God to open the heavens and to come down and to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Part of the problem is we don't know God like Jehoshaphat did. Notice with me three things about God that we find in his prayer. Three things that we find. First, Jehoshaphat knows of God's present power. He knows of God's present power. Uh, He knows it from experience, and he knows it uh, uh, from the Scriptures. He knows it from God's Word. Look with me at verse 6. I love this verse. I love this prayer. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? It's almost as if he's, he's preaching to himself, and he's preaching a little bit to the assembly. We're taught not to, to pray as though we're preaching. Those are two different things, but it's almost as if he's doing that here. Are you not God in heaven? Of course you are. 
Prayer reorients our focus. It helps us to engage in right thoughts about who God is. Of course He's God in heaven. Of course He can do all things immeasurably above and beyond even what we ask or imagine. You rule over the kingdoms of the nations, He says. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Remember the context. The armies were marching in. But He stands remembering God's present power. Now, I know God is sovereign. I believe this. I know the theology behind it. But if I truly knew His sovereignty and His power, then I have to ask myself, why don't I pray like it? Why don't I pray like it? Why don't I pray for things that only God could do? Raise the dead. Save my neighbor. Give me victory over sin. Bring healing to relationships. My prayers are far too limited and nearsighted But Jehoshaphat turns his focus and his gaze upward, and he remembers that God is able to do all things. Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confidence. When's the last time we prayed with confidence, expecting God to do great things for us through prayer? This is not the health, wealth, and prosperity sermon, but this is a reminder that we need to storm the gates of heaven expecting God to answer us and hear us when we come in faith. We come with confidence in His present power. This is what the king did. Secondly, notice not only God's present power, but God's past provisions. Verse 7 As he stands and prays in the assembly, he continues, Did you not, O God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Prayer remembers God's past provisions and past faithfulness, which then gives us present and future hope. And sometimes... In our times of darkness and depression and discouragement and we don't know how to pray, we don't know how we're going to get through it, we don't know how God's going to get us through it, we simply remember and we must remember in our prayers that He has gotten us through it already. He has been faithful to us in the past. And so we raise our Ebenezer's, we We remember those memorial stones, those places where God met with us and answered our prayer in the past. And if the king of Judah could say this, how much more can you and I say this? Because redemptive historically, God has done a wonderful thing in our past. Jesus Christ has died on a cross, and he has been raised from the dead. And if God, who did not spare his own son, but graciously 
gave him up for us, how will he not also give us all things that we need? All provisions. So he trusts in in God's present power. He remembers God's past provisions. And then finally, he recalls God's precious promises. The next part of his prayer, uh, King Jehoshaphat prays a portion of Solomon's prayer that he had offered up to God earlier uh, at the dedication of the temple where God promised to hear the cries of His people when they're under duress. And so, to the original audience hearing these words, the reality of their situation was that the temple was gone. Perhaps they concluded so too was God's ear for them. But this ought to have taught them the answer is not found in a physical building. The answer is found in the promise of God Himself who says, seek me and you will find me. Turn to me and I will turn to you and hear your prayer. Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord because He hears my prayer. And boys and girls, that's a wonderful promise, isn't it? That God hears our prayers through Jesus. Whether here at church, in the corporate assembly of the people, or whether at home, or whether at school, wherever we are, God in Christ hears our prayer. God will never plug His ears when we come through Jesus Christ. Listen to Spurgeon. When you cannot pray in words... When you cannot pray in words, go and lay bare your sorrow before God. Just go and show your soul. Tell God what it is that burdens and distresses you, and you will prevail with the bounteous heart of our God, who is not moved by eloquence of words and oratory of tongue, but is swift to answer the true oratory, the true eloquence of real distress. God invites you to come to Him and His throne of grace in your weakness, not in eloquence. He invites you to come and pray, oh God, we are powerless. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Verse 12, as you know, isn't the end of the story. Lord willing, I'd like to finish the story another time. But if your Bibles are still open and you're still in chapter 20 of Second Chronicles, I want to give you just a taste of the way in which God answers the prayer of the king. He sends a prophet, Jehaziel, Verse 15, and the prophet said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle Stand firm, hold your position, 
and get a load of this, see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Oh, Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. What a beautiful picture this morning of the Lord's table. We do not need to fight for Christ has already fought and he has won. And it's as if God says to us this morning, stand firm, hold your position of need, your position of weakness, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And even here at the table of grace, when Satan might tempt you to, to despair and tells you of the guilt within. Look upward and see him there who made an end of all your sin. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the weapon of prayer. We have no resources. We have no righteousness. Christ is all we have. And prayer is weakness, acknowledging our limit, acknowledging our need, acknowledging the God who loves and delights to Shower us with blessing and grace and power who loves bringing us to a, a point of weakness that we might glory not in ourselves but that we might boast in Christ and in the cross. Oh Lord, make us a people of prayer that we would stand firm, that our posture of weakness would only deepen. And now Father, would you feed us with rich and glorious things. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.